Uh, For those of us who are hanging out in here this morning, we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Habakkuk, um, which you may have never heard of that book of the Bible before, but that is a book of the Bible. It's a very small book in the Old Testament. It's in the section of the minor prophets. There are some major prophets and some minor prophets. If you're looking for it in the Bible, it's more than halfway through, right before you get to the New Testament is where you find all the minor prophets. Um, But you may have never read this book before. Even if you're someone who reads the Bible, you may have skipped right over Habakkuk. But the message of this prophet is very relevant for us today. Here's what Habakkuk is about. How can God be good when there is so much evil in the world? Let me personalize that a little bit. How can God be good when there is so much evil in my life? Um, It can feel like all we hear in our world around us is more and more bad news. Um, I saw a news email this week and the subject line was this, quote, three threats soar, end quote. And then the leading story was entitled existential threats. This is just this week. Here's how it started. It said, quote, put aside your politics and look at the world clinically and you'll see the three areas many experts consider existential threats to humanity worsening in 2023. This isn't meant to start your day with doom and gloom, but focus your mind on how the threats of nuclear catastrophe, rising temperatures, and all-powerful AI capabilities are spiking worldwide. This is how it started. And on the topic of AI, of artificial intelligence, this is what it said. Quote, the technology's top architects say there's a non-zero chance it will destroy humanity. A non-zero chance that AI is going to somehow destroy humanity. They don't really know how or why it works. AI, which can... Uh, Mass-produced fake videos, sound bites, and images also threatens Americans' already tenuous trust in elections and institutions. Just this week, one news email. Um, Regardless of what you think about AI or nuclear weapons, that's just one passing headline from this past week. Um, And we are inundated with this stuff all the time. Think about the last three years. Think about... Uh, on a global and even just national level. We've been through um, a global, a historic global pandemic. Um, Racial unrest and rioting that shortly followed that. The very polarizing political responses to those things that followed. Um, Just past this past March in Nashville, the school shooting that took the lives of students and teachers at a small Christian school in the South. And these past few years, it has felt like Um, evil and like we've been in a a uniquely hard time. Habakkuk was living in evil and hard times. Uh, When the pastor Tim Keller preached on Habakkuk at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, it was in the midst of the 2008-2009 financial uh, economic crisis. And so he was in the epicenter, being in New York City, of a lot of these massive financial firms that were just collapsing. Stuff we thought would never happen was just falling down around them. Um, And the question that he posed was, are we now living in evil times? And that was something like, you know, 14 years ago. What about right now in 2023? Are we living in evil times? If so, can we still have hope? Is there still enough reason to have hope? Uh, Think about your own personal life. Maybe not on like a global or national level, but just think about your own life right now. Are you personally living through uniquely hard and evil times right now? You know, as a pastor, I'm sometimes let in um, to some of the harder things in people's lives. And I can say without a doubt that life is hard for everyone, 
in different ways. It doesn't always appear that way, but it's very difficult. And we all have or will have seasons of life that feel uniquely hard and uniquely evil, where it feels like everything is going wrong, nothing is working out in our favor, everything and everyone's against us, and there's no reason for hope. Um, another unsuccessful dating relationship that has ended that leaves you wondering, am I ever going to meet someone? Um, a monster unexpected financial uh, medical bill that devastates your finances. Uh, getting bullied at school again and not wanting to go back to school and have to face it. Um, a strained marriage that feels stuck and impossible. Uh, a terminal health diagnosis that just comes out of the blue. Real life. Really hard things. Here's the question of Habakkuk. Where is God in all this? Um, if God is good and holy and all-powerful, where is he in the hard and evil times? We're going to spend three weeks answering that question. And we're going to look at the beginning of the prophet's words this morning. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. You can see that printed in your bulletin. Verse 1 says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verses 2 through 4 are Habakkuk's complaint to God. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do come before you thanking you for your word this morning. And we ask that you would speak to us. Oh, how we need to hear from you, especially those of us who feel like we're in uniquely hard or evil times. Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, two headings that we'll think about this passage under this morning. The first is Habakkuk's complaint, and the second is God's response. First, Habakkuk's complaint. Uh, before we jump into his complaint, who was Habakkuk? Uh, the answer is, we don't really know. Um, his name is mentioned twice in this book, in this prophecy. Um, but it's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. We know that he was a prophet in Judah, um, which was uh, where God's people were. Um, but this book of prophecy is different from other prophets. Um, because it's only a conversation between Habakkuk and God. If you've ever looked at a, uh, one of the books of the prophets in the Bible before, typically you see two things. You see a conversation between the prophet and God. So they're sort of wrestling with each other. God gives the prophet a message. But then you see that prophet take that message to God's people and communicate it, which it's never received well. 
Uh, but what's different about Habakkuk is we don't see, we don't know what he told God's people, what he actually said. What we see in Habakkuk is only the conversation between Habakkuk and God. So essentially the curtain is being pulled back in this book and we are getting a window into Habakkuk's prayer life and God's response directly to him. And it almost feels like a psalm of lament. We just spent the summer in the psalms. The laments were the ones where God's people were crying out. They were upset about what was going on around them. Habakkuk almost feels like a psalm of lament because he's complaining to God. What was the complaint? Clearly he's troubled in this passage. Verse 1, it talks about this oracle that Habakkuk saw. That word oracle has the meaning of a burden. So you could say that Habakkuk felt burdened with what was happening around him, where he just had to cry out to God and bring it before him. What was the burden that he complained to God about? Look at verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Verse 3, underline this one. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? He says, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. What's going on here? Um, People who should know better were doing wrong. That's what was going on. God's people, his holy people, his set apart people, his light to the nations people were completely disobeying God. Their lives looked no different than that of the surrounding nations. Um, I had a season in my own life, so I came to know the Lord in high school, walked with the Lord through college. I had a season uh, right after I graduated college where um, I kind of moved out of a, a situation in life where I was surrounded by Christians, living in close Christian community, walking with Jesus. I moved out of that, took a job where I was not surrounded by Christians, and I kind of stepped out of Christian community, lived to a different, moved to a different part of town where I just wasn't doing life with other believers, and I drifted from the Lord during this season. And I rebelled more and more. And my life over the course of that year did not look like the life of a follower of Jesus. And I actually had good Christian friends from college that confronted me in love about that and said, Hey, Jonathan, what is going on in your life right now? Um, The way that you're living, it doesn't look like you're a follower of Jesus. It doesn't look like you really believe what you say you believe. Your life looks no different. Maybe you've had a season like that in your life before, in your walk with the Lord. Multiply that on an individual level. Multiply that to the nation of Israel. That's what beginning to get at what Habakkuk was seeing here, where there was all this disobedience, where they were supposed to be God's treasured possession, His holy people that were to look different, model something different, and they looked no different than anyone else. Their lives looked just the same. And apparently Habakkuk had been crying out to God in the past about this. He says, God, I've asked you about this. I've cried out and you have not answered. You've not done anything about this. Um, But still, what was the complaint? Look closely at his complaint. Commentators point out here that he is not primarily complaining about the evil around him that God's people are committing. He is complaining primarily about the fact that God is not doing anything about it. Verse 3, why God do you look idly at wrong? Habakkuk's issue is more with God than it is with the people who are doing evil. Where are you, God? How can you let this happen? It shouldn't be this way. What he's really saying is, God, this is really your fault. You know, you could do something about this, but you're not. And I wonder, just thinking about your own life and your own story, for all of us here this morning, have you ever felt this way with God? 
Um, and maybe you're here and, and you wouldn't yet consider yourself a Christian. And this is a major roadblock for you. It's something that holds you back from kind of going all in with your faith. Um, this uh, dilemma of, of how can a good, holy, all-powerful God allow so much evil and hard and difficult things into my life, into the world? God, why aren't you doing anything about it? Um, if you felt this way, I wonder, do you talk to God about it? Uh, Tim Keller, when he preached a sermon on this very passage, he highlights the fact that Habakkuk was being both bold and honest with God. He says he definitely crossed the line, crosses line and becomes intemperate with how he's speaking to God. But at a minimum, as we look at Habakkuk here, we can affirm that he was talking to God about it, that he was praying, um, that his response to all this evil around him, um, to his questioning about where God was in the midst of that evil he was experiencing, it did not lead him to walk away from God. This was not another deconversion story um, that, you know, where he says, well, because of this, I'm out. Um, but nor did it lead him to just try to ignore and downplay the evil and make it seem like it just wasn't that big of a deal. What did he do instead? He prayed. He was honest and he was bold with God. Are you able to approach God that honestly? Are you able to approach God with that kind of boldness? Not, not the intemperance that we see in Habakkuk, but honesty. And boldness. And the Psalms are full of these kind of prayers that we've looked at this summer. Psalms cry out to God, why? Why are things like this right now, God? The fact that Habakkuk approached God in this way and the fact that we have so many Psalms of lament that cry out about how hard and how evil life can feel in our world, what does this tell us about God? Keller makes the point that it shows us that God knows what it's like for us to live in this world and experience evil and to not have all the answers. So he gives us the, these words in scripture to pray about these things. This what we see is an actually, it's actually an act of grace and kindness because God knows we are going to wrestle with these things. So he's given us Habakkuk. He's given us the Psalms to say, here, use this script, use these words to cry out to me. Um, what if uh, rather than looking at the evil all around you or the inconsistent, messy lives of Christians around you as a reason for distancing from God... What if instead this became a means through which your relationship with God was strengthened through prayer? This is Habakkuk's first complaint. He's going to complain again next week. But this is the first. And he's wondering why God isn't doing anything about all the evil in Israel. Um, all right, let's zoom in for a moment on the particular situation in Israel. What was going on? How bad were things? It's likely that he was, um, just to do a little bit of history here, he was prophesying just after the time Josiah had become king. Josiah offered this brief glimmer of hope in Israel after a lot of really bad kings. Most of the history of Israel's kings is terrible. Josiah offered a glimmer of hope. But some of the issues that were going on then that Habakkuk was speaking into, there was idol worship, where they would literally construct and build idols other than the one true God and start bowing down to them. After they had themselves had built them, they would start worshiping these other false gods. There were houses of male cult prostitution that God's people were frequenting. Uh, their animals were being dedicated to these false gods. They constructed altars to worship these other gods. The rich in their, in, in their midst were oppressing and using the poor. Um, it would almost be like the equivalent of one of our neighborhood groups here at Resurrection. Rather than getting together to have fellowship and a meal and, and discuss a sermon and pray together, it would be like everyone brought their tools and some, and some lumber and they like built an altar to another god. And instead of like discussing the sermon, they bowed down and worshiped another god. And then someone would walk into that and say, what? these are like resurrection neighborhood group people. What are they doing? What are they doing? That's not what they're supposed to be doing. 
In addition to this idolatry and false worship in Israel, the leaders of God's people were abusing the leadership. They were totally unjust in the way they ruled. It was a complete mess. So Habakkuk is burdened. And he's burdened not just that that things are this bad, but that God's not doing anything about it. Where are you, God? And I wonder if you've wrestled with God in the way that Habakkuk is wrestling. Overwhelmed with evil, maybe on a cultural level, maybe on a personal level. Habakkuk's complaint is, how can a good and holy God allow such evil to run rampant? And what is God's response? Second heading. How does God respond? Certainly not in the way that Habakkuk expected. Certainly not in the way that we expect. The first thing he says is that I'm doing something that you can't fathom. Look at verse 5. It says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He tells Habakkuk, he says, you're so focused on how all God's people are doing wrong right now, how evil they are. I want you to take your eyes off your own people and look at the surrounding nations. Look at something much bigger that is happening. It's so big that you're not going to believe it if I told you. Um, And stop right there. We're going to learn in a moment what God's going to do because he's going to tell Habakkuk exactly what he's going to do. But God did not need to answer that question. God did not need to respond. He did not need to answer the question. There is a line of distinction between God and us. Actually, we had a guest preacher months ago that drew this up here on a whiteboard. If I had a whiteboard, I would draw it right now. That God is up here, there's a line, and then we are down below. And there's this line that runs in between us. And we can only know the things that God gives us below that line. In his word, through history, but it's only what God lets us know that we can know. We live below the line. There's a lot of stuff that God does above the line that we don't know now and that we may never know. What was going on with Habakkuk was Habakkuk was upset with what was going on below the line. And he did not understand it. And what God is telling him is, hey, there's something above the line that's so big that you're not going to understand this, even if I were to tell you. And he's going to tell him. And Habakkuk is not going to understand. God was doing above the line stuff during Habakkuk's time. And Habakkuk was infuriated about it. It seemed like God wasn't doing anything at all. Uh, so I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and I've been a lifelong Chiefs fan. And I try not to talk about it too much up front because we are in no way in Chiefs country. Uh, but just give me this one. Um, so um, being a Chiefs fan has mostly been a struggle for all of my life until the Patrick Mahomes era in these past few years. It's been amazing. All of, of those many years have finally paid off. Uh, but there was a lot of uproar uh, two seasons ago when the Chiefs... Um, traded their all-star receiver Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins. It was a massive uproar because um, you've heard of Patrick Mahomes, most likely you've heard of Patrick Mahomes. Tyreek Hill was thought to be kind of the key to this whole thing working because he was this outstanding all-star receiver. And they traded him away. And so people were thinking, they were complaining and crying out, what are you guys doing? This makes no sense. I hope you enjoyed the success while it lasted because all that's over now. Tyreek's gone. It's not going to work anymore. And it went on and on and on throughout the offseason. But what we came to find out is that Andy Reid, the Chiefs head coach, Clark Hunt, the Chiefs owner, and Patrick Mahomes had been scheming behind the scenes. They had a plan all along. Getting rid of Tyreek Hill was going to free up all this money to where they could grow and develop a full core of receivers that was actually going to make them more powerful and better than they were before. And as you can see with the last season, that definitely proved to be the case. But all the fans who didn't know these plans had no idea. They just complained because they were experiencing the bad. They, they couldn't understand how any good could come from this trade. All right, you see this type of thing all the time. 
Think about in a classroom, students not understanding uh, the rationale behind teachers teaching in a certain way, not knowing that the struggles now will lead to, to greater learning down the road for them as students. Coaches, if you're on a team, coaches making athletes do grueling workouts that don't seem like they're going to help, all the while they're being conditioned to perform better in a way that they can't even imagine. But in all those scenarios, what do we do? When we're below the line, we complain. Because based on our limited information, it doesn't seem right. This was the situation between God and Habakkuk. And God tells Habakkuk that he's doing something he can't fathom. What does he tell him next? He says, I'm going to use evil to accomplish my good purposes. Look at verse 6. He says, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And he goes on and on about how bad they are. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were terrible. God says they're bitter, they're hasty, they come through and they flatten other nations, they flatten people groups, they take everything they have. And they're terrifying. They have no regard for justice, no dignity. Their armies, they're unstoppable. The nations, there's no nation that can stand against them. Uh, when Aaron and I were first married, um, we, had, we were given this old ping pong table that we set up in our basement. And so this is before we had children uh, and so occasionally we would go downstairs and play ping pong against each other. Even just saying that out loud is a very different life I was living uh, than the life I live now. Sounds amazing. Uh, but what I didn't realize when I married my wife was that she is uh, the queen of what I call leisure sports. Um, any sport that you can do inside um, that requires um, excellent eye-hand coordination, she is an absolute beast at. And so we started playing ping pong and it was no exception. Every time we played, she destroyed me in ping pong. And it got to where I just knew that I did not stand a chance. Uh, ping pong, it wasn't fun anymore because she was so good and I was so bad. There was no contest whatsoever. When you look at other nations compared to the Babylonians, they did not stand a chance. And so for God to tell Habakkuk that he is raising up the Babylonians to come and punish Israel for their disobedience, it would have been shocking and it would have instantly struck fear into Habakkuk. Zoom out for a moment. Do you hear how God is answering him? How God is answering his complaint? To his complaint of, um, hey God, there's a lot of evil happening in the midst of your people. Why aren't you doing anything about it? Here's how God responds. I actually am doing something about it. I'm going to use the most evil nation to come and punish the evil in Israel. Listen to how one commentator summarizes this. He says, on the one hand, this confirms that God is indeed a God of justice... On the other hand, the way in which God maintains justice by instigating even more injustice is incomprehensible and consequently the answer does not satisfy the prophet. And maybe it doesn't satisfy us either. Um, does it answer the question we started with? How can a good and holy God allow so much evil and injustice in our world? Why isn't he doing anything? Um, to that, God's answer is that he is doing something He's even using the evil, the hard things, in some mysterious way to accomplish his good purposes. Let's do a very brief theological deep dive on this. This is an important concept to grasp if we're going to understand Habakkuk or really the Bible and the life uh, as a Christian in this world. This is how the Westminster Confession of Faith 
defines God's providence, which means his control and directing of all of human history. This is what it says. I'm going to read it and I'm going to explain it. It says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifests themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall, that means to when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by bare permission, that is not just allowing it to happen, but such as has joined with it a most wise and powerful uh, bonding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation, lots of different ways, to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature, not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither uh, can be the author or approver of sin. That's a mouthful. What is it saying? That is saying that God is not the author of sin. And that God does not approve of sin. That we alone as humans are guilty of sin. Not God. Yet, God providentially allows sin and evil to happen. And also uses it. He uses it in his wisdom and his power for his holy purposes. Let me say that again just so we're clear. God is not the author of sin. God does not approve of sin. We alone are guilty of sin. Not God. Yet... God providentially allows sin and evil to happen and also uses it in his wisdom and his power for his holy purposes. Here's how the ESV Study Bible summarizes this. God's ways of preserving and purifying his people are mysterious to the believer and yet God calls his suffering people to show faith that God's purposes for the world will at last prevail. Years ago, the New York Times um, had an article that referenced a study. This was when um, streaming was just getting really popular. And so uh, entire seasons of shows were being released like on Netflix and Prime uh, just like that. Like suddenly you have the whole season. So you get people who would binge watch an entire season in one night. What this meant was spoiler alerts were now everywhere. And so it wasn't like in the old days when you could watch one episode per week and sort of follow along as the rest of the world watched. But there'd be people who watched it and would post things online about what happens at the end. And so in this study that they referenced, they studied people. Uh, one group was, was given the ending of a story and then either read the story or watched the show. And their enjoyment was monitored throughout that process. The other group uh, did not know the ending of the story. And as they read or watched the show, uh, their enjoyment was monitored. At the end of the study, they found out that the enjoyment did not change of that particular story, even when you know the outcome. So spoiler alerts really don't spoil anything. You may disagree with that, but hey, this is science. Okay, for followers of Jesus, facing hard, evil times, knowing the end of the story is actually essential for living in the story. What is the end of God's story? It's God coming back and making us and all things new again, where there will be no more evil, no more hard times, no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, only joy, only feasting, only worship with God and his people forever. That is the end of the story. This is where God's purposes are taking us. And we have to keep that in mind if we're going to be trusting of God and hopeful in these hard times. So the question is, are you able to trust God in that way? Um, you might feel like right now you are stuck in a really bad chapter of this story. And you've forgotten the ending. And all you can think about is the evil and the immediacy of this hard chapter of life that you're in right now. And if that's where you are, you have to remember that this story has a good ending. 
that that difficult chapter that you're in is not ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is the ending of the story where this chapter is heading. And it's a beautiful ending. Why? Because we know that the author of this story is good. And we know that we can trust him even in the midst of this really hard chapter that we're in right now. Um, This passage leaves us with the big important concept that even when it doesn't look like God is at work accomplishing his good purposes, he actually is. He actually is, even when we're below the line and we can't get our minds around it. Even when it feels like it's only evil and only hard times around us, we can actually trust him. We can trust him. Um, We can trust him in the hard times. We can actually still have hope in the hard times. How do we know? Um, Where else in scripture do we see God at work in a surprising way? In a way that didn't at all seem like it was his work. The cross. The cross. The cross looked like evil had won. The cross looked like failure. The cross looked like um, Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Uh, That he really didn't have the power that he claimed to have. That maybe he wasn't the king. That maybe after all there wasn't reason for hope. But then three days later the resurrection happened. And it's an even more beautiful outcome than we could have imagined. Uh, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's what God says to Habakkuk. And then he shockingly raises up the Babylonians to come and punish his people. Acts 13.41, the Apostle Paul quotes Habakkuk and says, For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. Do you know the work that Paul's talking about in Acts chapter 13? He's talking about the work of Jesus on the cross. Um, When we look at the cross, we see something maybe even more shocking than what happened in Habakkuk's day. He did a work that we would not believe if we were told, that many who were told did not believe. But the outcome is far greater. The outcome of this salvation by grace through faith, where our deepest need is met in a way that we could not have imagined. Uh, God is good. God is at work, even when life is hard and it does not feel like it and we can't see it in ways we can't comprehend. And when we forget this, we need to set our eyes again on the cross of Jesus where we are reminded that we really can trust Him and we really can have hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the good news and the hopeful news that even when life seems impossible, even when life seems really hard, even when life seems all evil all the time, that You are still at work. That You're working above the line in very mysterious ways, in ways we can't fully comprehend, but in ways that we know are ultimately good. Father, help us to believe this good news today. Give us faith. Our faith is weak. We doubt. We confess our unbelief to you. Pray for deeper belief. We pray ultimately that our hope would be in Jesus, who came and lived and died and rose again on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.